Hello and welcome to A Moment in History. I'm Michelle. And I'm Grace. And this week is Spies. Spies, yes. It's part two of, we're calling it the Deception Trilogy? Yes. Yes. So we had lies last time and we've got spies this time. And they so all the person rhyme. I did... And they, <laughs> and they all rhyme. I'm, it's, it's fantastic, honestly. So the person that I'm doing, actually, I've wanted to do since we started kind of recording and uh, as in the podcast completely and we were doing like at the very beginning we were doing like very lots of just research about a lot of different people Mm -hmm. before we kind of realized how the structure of this would go and I found this woman and I was like oh she's really really cool I want to do her but then she never really fit into a um Mm. a category but she's a spy so it works really well so the the person (laughs) I'm doing is Josephine Baker. Have you ever heard of her? The singer? Yeah. I did not know she was a spy. Right? There was so... I'm like, she's got to fit into a category somewhere because she did so many things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'll, I'll begin at the beginning then. So, she was born June 3rd, so soon, mm-hmm. um, 1906, as Frida Josephine MacDonald in St. Louis, Missouri. So, I think that's south, isn't it? South America. Well, South US. Her parents were both entertainers. It's kind of... People aren't 100% sure who her dad was. Mm -hmm. There's, like, somebody who is, like, accepted to be who her dad was, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But there's a little bit of uncertainty about that, including, Mm -hmm. I think... I don't really think, like, her mum is 100% certain. (laughs) Um, So her mum was a dancer, Mm -hmm. um, and her dad, if it is who they say it was, uh, was a drummer... But neither of them kind of were very successful in it. Her dad left when she was a baby. And because of that, her mum kind of had to then stop the dancing and had to get mm-hmm. um, like a full-time job. So, and then Josephine, from a very young age, had to then look for work as well. Is dancing not a full-time job? Yes. <laughs> as in like, she had to get, I don't know how to... Like a, a nine-to-five. Yeah, like a... A structured job, let's say. Mm. So, like, one that you could guarantee that there would be yeah. money every day in. Yeah. I didn't know how to phrase it. I was like, <laughs> I don't want to... Because it is, but you've got to be very, very successful in it to make it kind of... Yeah, true. A full-time job. So, her mum got remarried um, and had three kids with um, her next partner and to earn josephine would babysit and like clean the houses of white families which as you can imagine was not great it meant that she would get insulted abused sometimes even sexually abused by people that she would work for um and all of this was when she was like eight years old oh my god yeah honestly history is awful sometimes yes she would often be on the streets hungry. She used to play around the railroads and she dropped out of school when she was 12 years old. So in terms of like a rags to riches story, this is very much one of those. Mm-hmm. So at age 13, she was living on the streets. I don't know why she wasn't living um, mm-hmm. with her mum and like stepdad at this point, but she was scavenging for food and she would earn kind of change dancing on street corners. Oh. So... Yeah, during this time, it's a bit. I'm a bit uncertain because all the kind of reports said about different timings. But around this time, when she was 13, she met a guy called Willie Wells, 
who um, she married when she was 13. Okay. Mm. He was 25. I mean, I guess if it gets you off the streets. Yeah. He was also... Their marriage didn't last very long. I think she was quite disruptive. Their marriage wasn't completely legal, and so he left. And her mum obviously had a lot of kind of issues about this, the fact that she got married so young, the fact she was an entertainer on street corners. And so there was a massive strain between her and her Mm mum. Also, when then Josephine got married again at age 15 to another guy called Willie. I didn't realise it was a really (laughs) popular name then. But this was Willie Baker, which is where she got her surname from. So although she kind of uh, divorced him then, I think only like four years later, Mm -hmm. she kept his name and kind of then used it for the rest of her life, which, I don't know, it's kind of strange, I guess. Maybe she's like the sound of it. Yeah, and at the same time, she this was kind of when she became an entertainer. She very much took on the persona of Josephine rather than her, you know, actual oh. first name, Frida. So I suppose it's just kind of reinventing with name, mm-hmm. um, which is quite nice for her. She was spotted by a dance troupe when she was performing as well, and so they, uh, which were called the Jones Family Band. And they took her and they went to New York to perform on stage there. There she had, you know, a series of many relationships with both men and women, including um, a notable blues singer called Clara Smith, who I'd never heard of, but apparently, like, that was... They both did very, very well. Oh. When she travelled, she... Although there was a rift between her family at home and what she was doing she always would return home um that's nice and kind of yeah give you know money and buy souvenirs and things for Mm -hmm. her mum and for her siblings so she was there was a rift but she was she was a good egg Mm -hmm. so uh in new york she was dancing with this troupe in a chorus line on broadway and she was the last on the chorus line which meant that it was kind of her role to be the comedic one um, in it. So she would, you know, pretend that she didn't know the dancers and then at the end she would perform them, like, perfectly. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time she would also upstage other people who were a bit more experienced than her, so I don't (laughs) think she made very many friends whilst doing it. (laughs) But with audiences, she became a hit very, very quickly. So she became one of the highest paid chorus girls um, in vaudeville and then ended up moving to France with them. Wow. So, I know. So from what I can tell, when she moved to France, her act was no longer kind of part of a chorus line, but then was on her own, Mm -hmm. um, where she would do kind of like erotic dancers wearing very, very little. And when I say very little, I mean in some cases she would wear bikinis made out of only feathers. And in one of her most famous dancers, she wore, it was like a belt, well, not a skirt made out of bananas. <laughs> Amazing. Right? Which earned admiration, obviously, from everybody. Um, around this time was also the 1920s. So if you can imagine the other kind of people who were existing within mm-hmm. kind of the French Parisian lifestyle of then. So she became friends with people like Picasso. Hemingway, E. Cummings. Mm-hmm. So obviously, also around the time was again the art movement. So 
quite possible that kind of her African style was also being adopted into a lot of the Art Deco movements. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then also she was... (laughs) She's quite, you know, exciting to go watch. She would have also um, a cheetah would come onto stage with her. Okay. Who who was called... Oh, God. I think it's... I should have written this down. Chiquita, I think, was the name of it. Chiquita um, And it... Yeah. <laughs> it would, the, the, the cheetah would wear, like, a diamond collar and it would follow her onto the stage and it would go into like the orchestra pits and oh terrorise the musicians. Uh, but the audiences loved it and it made it really, really exciting for them. So she earned herself so many nicknames on the stage, such as uh, Black Venus and the Black Pearl, received over a thousand marriage proposals. Whoa. Right? And she said that it was in France that she got her big break. She didn't really have she she didn't really credit america with a lot of um what what they gave her mm-hmm. and then in the 1930s she began singing so acting and singing she landed roles in films such as zuzu and princess tam tam and the money that she earned from that she bought i think it was a castle in the southwest of france um Whoa. i know and then she moved all of her family there to france with her that's nice. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. But then, obviously, 1930s, you've also got racism is a thing. Yeah, because mm-hmm. history sucks and people suck. So she was enjoying her life in France and there wasn't really much of an issue there. Like, people really appreciated. They were like, oh, my God. In a kind of what, with a modern day gaze, is kind of a bit... But they really appreciated her blackness, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, because she was a bit exotic, which was fine for her. But then she would be invited back to the US um, as well to perform there because it was her homeland. She wanted to kind of spread her fame there. Mm -hmm. Um, But the US were not so excited about the fact that she was not white. So after, yeah, after a great deal of mistreatment in the US, she then moved back to France and... I think she kind of said, I don't really want much to do with America uh, for the time being. Uh, mm-hmm. She, When she returned to France, she, yeah, she got married to a guy called Jean Lyon, who was a French industrialist. Um, and so marrying him, she gained citizenship to France. Nice. Good yeah. And Yeah. <laughs> and now it becomes relevant to the theme. So mm-hmm. in 1939, obviously, is the start of the Second World War. Yes. So she worked in the Red Cross where during the occupation of mm-hmm. Poland, which France helped out with. And then she was also a member of the Free French Forces. She went to entertain troops in Africa and the Middle East. And then what she would do is, so she would be performing in front of troops from around the world. Mm-hmm. Well, not around, but not quite around the world at this point but from many different places and she would kind of just listen to what they were saying because Mm. people didn't think that she was anything to do with it because she was just a performer so she would listen and then she would just pass on information nice yeah and at the same time because she was kind of she you know was at the peak of her fame at this point it meant that and also she was a really kind of personable being so but human being so she was able to 
kind of woo her way into crowds. Mm. It meant that she would entertain German troops and charm them at parties. She would kind of get her way into cafes uh, where she'd get an audience with Japanese officials and Italian uh, bureaucrats. And so she would just listen to what they were saying. Like, they would just tell her information and then she'd just pass it on to the French in the English. And no one noticed. (laughs) Right? Which, brilliant. And so when the Germans then invaded France, she opened her castle up to people who were exiled um, and then she she helped supply them with visas um, so that they'd be safe. Yeah. And with her entertaining, also gave her an excuse to like move around a lot. When what she would actually be doing would just be like to go to England and then share information with mm-hmm. them that she'd learnt from the like the lines. And also because she was an entertainer, it meant that she would never be searched for anything. My God, there's so many. It just works. It's genius, but it's so simple. Yeah, <laughs> which makes me think like why. I understand that like. L- the war is something very unique to every single person who was in any way involved with it. Mm-hmm. Why did not more people do this? Because there were so many people who yeah. were entertaining. And I realised it was a massive risk to your safety, but there was like, you weren't searched. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. Mm. So yeah, she would smuggle messages in invisible ink uh, in her music sheets and also keep messages in her underwear uh, and then she just passed them off to the French resistance. Nice. Yeah. So 1941, she was uh, recovering from pneumonia, um, it says. I don't know. Mm-hmm. She must have got it in the previous year or earlier that year. Mm-hmm. But she uses this as an excuse to kind of travel to kind of French colonies in uh, North Africa. I don't know why you would have needed an excuse for that <laughs> other than just I'm performing there. Mm-hmm. But really she was just going to relay information. She'd pick tours that specifically kind of carried information from one place to the next. Mm-hmm. So that's how she kind of organised where she'd be travelling to. At the same year, so 1941, she was also... She had a miscarriage, which she was treated for. But the the infection of it was so bad that she had to have a hysterectomy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which then developed into se- sepsis. Oh, that's not yeah. good. She... No... When I was reading this, I was like, I swear she doesn't die till a lot later. So it was really confusing me. And she does recover from that. I thought mm-hmm. that sepsis was something that you just didn't recover from. Uh, but I assume they caught it mm-hmm. you know, early enough. So she did recover. And almost imminently, she then started to perform again in North Africa. And she basically had a rule that civilians would not be charged for admission. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this that she did went completely undetected. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And after the war, she was given the Rosette de la Resistance and given the Legion of Honour. And that was kind of her time in the war. It's very strange, but like, this is not one of those stories where it was like, she did this heroic thing in the war and it ended tragically for her. Mm. She did it. She got away from it and she was commemorated. So well done to France on that one. I know, yeah. Yeah, she moved back home to France then after the war had ended and got again married to another guy called a French guy uh, who's an orchestra leader and with him began to adopt children from around the world. So she had, yeah, she had um, 
12 children she'd adopted. Ooh. Some sources say 13, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was about 12. And she referred to her children as her rainbow tribe. Aww. <laughs> um, sweet. Yeah, she wanted to show that um, people and so, like, children could just co-live harmoniously regardless of race, religion, background, and such. It's kind of depending on the way you read it it sometimes reads very much like an exhibition yeah i can see that but yeah but i think she did take kind of i don't think she meant children from fortunate situations yeah and gave them you know a better life Mm -hmm. even i think even if she wasn't a very hands-on mother so yeah i think because it's like if it was a white woman who had a rainbow tribe that would be very problematic but as a person who has like faced racism and like yes. not experienced acceptance it kind of makes it okay yeah uh, yeah i know what you mean yeah so yeah she's trying to kind of prove that the things that had happened to her didn't need to happen it's just mm-hmm. someone's personal prejudice um angelina jolie actually says that this is kind of her ins- was her inspiration for because mm. I, I mean I don't know how many children Angelina Jolie adopted I probably should have looked that up but you know she was very much for kind of you get children from all backgrounds and you just let them live harmoniously because mm-hmm. racism is a social construct so in 1949 after she had kind of a bit of time off she came back with new branding mm-hmm. so now she was a wartime hero as well which like mm-hmm. people knew because she didn't like hide the fact after the war and so her acts would become they wouldn't really shy away from delicate kind of themes mm-hmm. um and she would discuss things more openly that needed to be spoken about that she wouldn't before um, and it it kind of really worked like people didn't mind i suppose she would have run the risk of people saying like well that's not what we used to come see you for but people really uh, enjoyed it and it re-established her as a huge star even mm-hmm. bigger than before so in 1951 she was invited back to the US to entertain there and they invited her to a club where the audiences were segregated oh my god the US like it just disguises itself as a really progressive place but it is the opposite of that yeah yeah but she she refused to perform so the club had to change its segregation laws good um and it encouraged many 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 other clubs to do the same because she went on a tour which i think sold out like it was her first national tour in the u.s and it sold out and she said basically if a club had segregated audiences then she wasn't going to perform and so most of the clubs just went "Mm, okay then we'll we'll get rid of those rules I heard a story about something Marilyn Monroe did. I think it was for Ella Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. Um, she, um, she got she wanted it to watch her like perform in this high ranking like club, but it was, it was either segregated or you just weren't allowed to like black people weren't allowed in, and so Marilyn yeah. Monroe was like, if you let her perform, and you let like non segregated audience, and I will come and see it for the first seven days it's on which will make a load of money and so they agreed to do it and they changed the whole structure of the club just so that 
Ella Fitzgerald could perform there. Oh, yes. You know. I just... That's... I, I don't know. Using your privilege for... Like, in a really good way. Rather than yeah. just kind of... She wasn't like, oh, there's no issue. She was like, well, no, there's an issue, but I get to help, which is nice. Yeah. So around the same time, obviously, you also got the civil rights movement, which is kind mm-hmm. of gaining traction. And Josephine participated in boycotts and in demonstrations, uh, made a lot of friends within the movement as well. She mm-hmm. was also, I think, she was really close to Martin Luther King, like a, oh, wow. a really personal friend of his. And so she actually was invited to perform and give a speech um, at the Washing- uh, the March on Washington oh, yeah. in 1963. And the um, NAACP actually named May 20th Josephine Baker Day in her honour. Oh. So after um, Martin Luther King was assassinated, his wife personally asked Baker to take over leadership of the, the movement. Oh. But Baker said that her kids were too young to lose their mother, so she turned it down. Mm. Mm. So, around the same time, I'd say she was making a lot of friends, she was also making a lot of enemies. There was so much research, I kind of just, you know, very quickly skipped over, because, I mean, I'm on 23 minutes of speaking Mm -hmm. at the moment, and there was still so much more. But one of the friends that she made was a guy called Walter Winchell, Who's a friend of hers, and then she so she got really angry um, at a club she was performing at because it it discouraged black patrons. So she was got got really angry about this, and she'd kind of expected Winchell to kind of support her mm-hmm. um, in what she was doing, and he didn't. Mm. So she got really angry at him, and then I openly scolded him about the fact that he hadn't. So in response he obviously got really angry at her and he wrote a lot of kind of accusations and one of those accusations was that she was a communist so in 19 what i think i think this is like 1960 something that's a very serious yeah accusation and so because of it her tour had to be completely cancelled her visa was terminated and she was kicked out of the country of the US or France? Of the US. She had to then move back to France. That's... What an idiot. I hate the guy. Yeah. She did go back in the 1970s, but she I don't think she was allowed to go back until then. Oh and also, I don't think she would have wanted to. Because every time she goes to the US, they're like, we're really going to be really shit to you. And she's like, well, please stop. And they're like, no. It was like Charlie Chaplin had to flee the US because he was seen as a communist was he? he wasn't a communist oh yeah well even being seen I suppose yeah because after yeah he moved to Switzerland and he didn't come back till he got an honorary Oscar ah yes (laughs) just picked it up and then got next flight back to Switzerland again yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) so in 1966 she was invited by Castro to perform in Cuba uh, in 1968, she was invited to Yugoslavia to perform there. Um, in 19, and then so she wasn't really performing a great deal then, other than like the odd thing she'd be invited to, mm-hmm. and she faced a lot of financial trouble oh. um, for it. But she was bailed out, so she had a friend. Oh, right. So back, 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 back. So at the 
the the tour that the club that she was doing where she asked for Winchell to support her and he wouldn't mm. um she got really really angry about it and um a friend of hers grace kelly went over and kind of they both left together and she consoled her and they became like lifelong friends oh yeah um it's just yeah um so she called on grace kelly to kind of help her out and she Mm -hmm. did and she would loan her money and things like that so that she could keep her estate afloat and she got kind of really upset that because she was older, because of what happened in America, because she was really struggling with money, that people had just found, kind of forgotten about her and didn't really mm. care anymore. Um, but then in 1973, she was invited back to the US again, which she went to, to perform um, in the Carnegie Hall in New York. Mm. And she had a standing ovation. Like oh, the place is filled with applause, standing ovation, and she was so moved that she just wept. Charlie um, Chaplin did the same thing. I need to stop mentioning it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, in 1973, um, she performed at the Babino Theatre in Paris as a kind of celebration that she'd now been on stage for 50 years. And, yeah. And so, in the audience uh, were many celebrities, including, obviously, her friends, Princess Grace of Monaco, Grace Kelly. There was also Sophia Loren, Jackie Kennedy, Mick Jagger, Shirley Bassey, Diana mm. Ross, Liza Minnelli. Like, there were so many people in the audiences, uh, in the audience. Um, and then, only a few days later, um, on April 12th, uh, she died in, of a cerebral hemorrhage at oh, age 68. Wow. Yeah. At least she got that experience before she yeah she got she got like a nice yeah mm. um i suppose to realize that she wasn't being forgotten yeah so the government so on the the day of her funeral twenty thousand people lined the streets to witness her procession oh my god yeah and the government honored her with a 21 gun salute Ooh. She was the first American woman to be buried um, in France with military honours. Whoa. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And there's loads of things now to kind of commemorate her. There was... I should have written all of this down, but like loads of people have kind of... Uh, like Beyonce did her banana dance um, in 2006. On the 110th anniversary of her birth, Vogue did kind of a piece about her... Obviously, she's been a Google Doodle. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, um, she was honoured on the Rainbow on a Walk um, in San Francisco's neighbourhood. So, yeah. And she, she'd been, like, commemorated in loads and loads of other ways. Been in loads of films. She was actually... I didn't realise, but she was in... Um, the, you know the film Frida? She was in that. Oh, whoa. Not her, but, like, someone playing yeah, yeah. her was in it as well. Um, loads and loads and loads and loads of stuff. So... Yeah, oh. it was really, really good. I know because I was reading a lot of sources, and one source I read really didn't like her for some reason, oh. which I don't quite understand. But it was saying like, well, she, you know, had an issue keeping a husband. She had an issue keeping friends. She had an issue with children and things. I was like, just give her a break. Like, mm. she was a very, very extraordinary woman. Yeah. She just, yeah, she liked what she liked. But yeah. So that was her. Yeah. My god, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, that was her. And uh, I'm going to show you a picture. We'll see if I can 
we'll put it on the Instagram um, mm-hmm. later. But it's actually so I have a, a book which was bought for me about what's it about? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Bad girls write history, mm-hmm. um, and so there's her in her oh, wow. banana skirt. This is so cool. cool. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Mm. I'm so Shall glad she got like recognition. Yeah, me too. Because I'm sure there were so many people who were doing things that she was doing that just kind of... Not that I imagine you did it for the recognition, but that just got completely ignored because it was deemed, you know, she didn't actively kill anybody or didn't actively, you know, take a bullet kind of thing. So Mm. a lot of people just disregarded it as a wartime effort, but... Mm. But yeah. Shall we take a break? That's a good idea. We are Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Pline and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system or sharks digestive systems or how many priests are necessary for an exorcism or the guillotine or how much milk can fit in a shopping cart or how to cook dicks or what it means when your nose itches or penguins or why it's called Scotland Yard or proper body disposal or sentencing or how to make it through an entire episode without saying God. How big does a rock have to be to be a boulder? Or geography. Or whether stingrays have teeth. Or crime in Minnesota. Or how medical parole works. Or why people text their crimes to each other. Or the hierarchy of cops. Or what a paper grabber is. Anything about an Alfred plea. The security at Buckingham Palace. If warrants expire. How to start a fire. How much drugs cost. If ducks would make good guard animals. Whether priests have to tell the police about crimes they are aware of and maybe even involved in. Pink stun guns. How much is 11 pounds of cocaine worth? The mechanics of hanging. What happened to Carla Homolka after her release? How to make a car fly. The colonial parkway killer. Do swans migrate? Marital property laws in Florida. If horses can throw up. Do crocodiles hire me? What animals can get drunk? How do you get stuck in a window? Sharks live. International flight security. How do you typewriter into your prison cell? What you shouldn't bring to a robbery. But. We're still crazy for a good true crime story. If you don't know anything about these things either, you should come listen to Crime Crazy. Diana, do you have any advice for us? Yeah, you should subscribe to Crime Crazy. You can find us on iTunes or Google Play or Podbean or your podcast catcher of choice. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WordPress, Facebook, Gmail, or Facebook. Call your people. Yes, call your people. And don't end up on next week's episode. Hello and welcome back. Hi. So, who have you done for this week? So, I've done... Her name is Margarita Gertrude Zell. Okay. But she's better known as Matahari. Okay. It's, I have it's a feeling like, I've read the name, but I haven't heard of, like, read anything about her. Yeah. Like, that was, like, me. Because there's a film about her that Greta Garbo starred in while she was still alive, ah. or just after. Mm-hmm. But she's quite a famous figure. Like, my parents knew who she was, so maybe some people will. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guarantee there will be some people out there going, yes, I have an in-depth knowledge about her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she was born on the 7th of August, 1876, in uh, okay. Leeuwarden, the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And she was a, a, a Dutch exotic dancer and a courtesan, and mm-hmm. uh, she was then a spy, somehow. But I don't want to spoil it, so... <laughs> okay. So, she was the eldest of four children. She had three brothers. And she was, like, her father's favourite. He just, like, showered her with gifts and everything. And she kind of learned quite young that she could get what she wants by pleasing men. Fair. Okay. But then, like, when she was 13, her dad went bankrupt. And then left the family. Oh. So, 
kind of her luxury ended. Hmm. Um, Why, like, he's just like, oh, my money's gone, so I'm going to leave. Like, it's like, no, you don't get to just walk out. Anyway, carry on. And then two years later, her her mother died. Oh, my God. Yeah, so we're in, like, this is about 1891. And then her father remarried in 1893, but, like, the whole family just kind of fell apart after this and so she ended up living with her godfather who was mr Bizzer, in a place called sneak which i think is a good name it's a good name yeah and then she was training to be a teacher but there's two versions of this story which i don't know which is true so there's one where she got kicked out because she was having an affair with the headmaster okay and there's one where the headmaster was very obviously flirting with her and her godfather who was very offended by this took her out but i don't know which is the Mm, correct one okay they both sound like things that would have happened yeah like yeah so she ended up going to the hague in uh, the netherlands to live with Mm -hmm. her uncle and the city at this time was full of like colonial officials who had just sort of returned from the dutch east indies which was it's like modern day Indonesia. Oh, okay. I didn't um, realise that there was... Although I kind of knew that there would have been places where colonialism... Like, you only learn about like British colonialism, mm. which is really bad. But, like, yeah. Anyway, carry on. And so she was 18 and she was bored. And so she just saw in a newspaper one day that a, a Captain Rudolph MacLeod was looking for a girl of pleasant character to marry. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so she's like, I can get a good life with this. So she agreed. Yeah. She went to meet him and they were engaged for six days and then married in July 1895. That seems too quick. I know. Yeah. And cause she kind of did it because she knew that officers who lived in like the East Indies had big houses and a lot of servants and a lot of money. And she mm. said she wanted to live like a butterfly in the sun. Oh, are butterflies um, particularly happy in the sun? I don't like. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they ended up moving to the island of Java, which is again in Indonesia, and she was kind of put into the Dutch upper class of that area. And so on the ship to the East Indies in nineteen eighty. 1897 she had a baby son called norman john she also found out that her husband had given her syphilis oh which was not great no and the marriage was not that great either so he was an alcoholic and he beat her he used to blame her for the lack of his promotions why openly i know he openly kept a concubine because that was like an accepted practice and the duchies yeah mm. so she very briefly abandoned him and moved in with a, a guy called van reeds who was another dutch officer and then during this time she started studying indonesian traditions okay and so for like for several months she was very interested in the local dance and she wrote to um, one of her relatives back in the netherlands that she'd been given an artistic name of Matahari, which was a word for sun, and in the Ma- Malay language is literally eye of the day. 
Okay. And so she she went. Well, she, her husband sort of begged her to come back. Um, okay. So she did. She came back, and um, he got a promotion, and he moved to like another part of the island to try and find them a new house. But while he was away, both of the children because they had another child. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> they both the children got ill, and they think it's probably like congenital syphilis that was why oh. they got ill. And so when he came back, he ordered a doctor to come. But the doctor was an army doctor, and he was used to treating grown men. So he oh. overdosed both kids. Oh my god! And they were like writhing in agony, and they were spewing up like black vomit. The two-year-old son died. Oh my god! Because of this. And um, the daughter recovered, but the scan- it says the scandal of this led him to gain a demotion, the husband, which I don't quite understand what the mm. scandal would have been. Like, the-, the fact that he ordered a doctor and the doctor messed up, or that he has syphilis, I-, I couldn't quite figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a combination of the two, that, like, mm. he'd done it and then it... Maybe he'd ordered the army doctor in order that he thought there would be, like, a certain amount of discrepancy to... Because mm. if he had, like, power over him, he'd have been like, I need you to treat my kids, but I need you to not tell what they're ill of. And then I suppose if that got investigated, both things would have been kind of exposed. Yeah. So after this point, they kind of just stopped hiding the fact that they hated each other. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And they moved back to the Netherlands, and then they got divorced in 1906. Okay. And she she did initially win custody of her daughter, but her daughter would end up being raised by her dad. Because right. I think one day he just decided, because she was visiting her dad, and then he's like, yeah, I don't want to give her back. So she That's... just couldn't, she couldn't afford to, like, get a lawyer to fight it. Right. And so, and... Her lifestyle wasn't the best for a child, so that didn't mm-hmm. help. Okay. I mean, something tells me that his wasn't either, but... Yeah. I mean, because yeah. even though she won custody, when she was, they were briefly together, her and her daughter, he was legally required to pay, like, support, but he just never did. Yeah. Which, you know, made everything difficult. <sighs> and she was like... She just kind of accepted him taking a daughter because she was like, even though he's an abusive husband, he was always a good father. But oh, I guess, yeah. Yeah. But then her daughter did actually die at the age of 21 from complications from syphilis. Oh my God. That's awful. Yeah. And so in 1903, she then moved to Paris and she was a circus horse rider. Okay. <laughs> and she used the name Lady MacLeod, which her ex-husband and his family were very not happy with because <laughs> it was like tainting their name um, yeah. and she cause she didn't make a lot of money doing that so she also posed as artist models as an okay. artist model and then around 1904 she started to be noticed as an exotic dancer mm-hmm. and so like at the time modern dance was starting to draw influences from sort of Asia and Egypt for like influences which mm-hmm. you know is a bit or it's like it is orientalism which is problematic but yeah 
but still it's bringing different cultures together yeah i suppose it's like are you bringing in the different cultures to be represented by people from those cultures are you bringing in things from those cultures because you learned about them when you went over to abuse the natives of those islands (laughs) yep yep yeah (laughs) anyway carry on and so she she was very like promiscuous and flirty and she was openly like flaunting her body and so she sort of got overnight success when she performed at the Musée Goumet in okay. 1905. And mm-hmm. she was the the longtime mistress of the owner of this museum, who is Emile Etienne oh. Goumet. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually lied about her origins to make her dance like more authentic. So she said she was a, a Javanese princess of the <laughs> Hindu okay. birth. And she, she like pretended to be immersed in the art and the sacred Indian dance since childhood. And she, because like a lot of her dances were of, like she was either nude or almost entirely nude, which at the time she could have been arrested for indecency. But okay, sh- she went with the story that like it's a ritual practice and that's why it's okay. And it's part of her culture, which is a bit. Mm. But it did kind of lead the way for like Josephine Baker, fifteen yeah, years later. I, I have like mixed feelings about it because it's like I, I think you know women should be allowed to show as much or as little skin as they want to, but like not through lying about your culture. Yeah. Yeah. So like one of the the most popular sections of her dance was like when she would like progressively take off clothing and you okay, like a striptease yeah pretty much and she would she'd never appear completely naked she'd always wear something that covered her breasts because mm-hmm. she was very self-conscious that she had small boobs oh that's sad i know and but she so wait would... she would <laughs> so everything else would be on show so yeah. you're telling me that like i know <laughs> down below <laughs> yeah would be like completely on full show. bush but then it'd be like, but just don't show the nip knops because they're a little <laughs> bit small. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> I respect that. <laughs> so she, like, there's famous pictures of her where she wears, like, a jeweled breastplate. And that's kind of, like, her famous image. Where it's just that, nothing else. Okay. But, like, at every performance, she would sort of explain that her dance was a sacred temple dance just to make sure that she couldn't, like, be caught or arrested. Okay. And the public, like, really just liked it because it was exotic and new and... <laughs> I mean... <laughs> and and she also was she was taking her clothes off, yeah! <laughs> I like how there would have been people then who'd have been like, I think it's fantastic because it really, like, enlightens us to the cultures around the world that uh, are more freeing. And it's like, no, a lot of you just like going to watch a woman take her clothes off. But we appreciate that you're trying to hide that within lines of academia. She posed for a lot of like provocative photos, which sort of mingled around wealthy circles. And her okay. ex-husband started collecting these to build a case up against her, why he should have the child and not her. Right, okay. I thought that was going in a different direction. No. I mean, he, yeah. he might have used them for other reasons. But... <laughs> And no one really questioned her plausibility if she was from Indonesia or not. Because she had quite dark hair and dark-ish skin. Like, it was 
like olivey oh. i think so okay. they just kind of like thought yes exotic but she was actually just from the netherlands <laughs> It's like it's like when um but someone who's like British goes on holiday to Spain and they come back and they're like a little bit tanned and everyone's like oh my god that's amazing and then it's like yeah, I'm a little bit tanned but like you're not you're going to ignore the, like the beauty of darker skin from places where there is actual darker yeah. skin mm-hmm. yeah so she was seen a lot with like aristocrats diplomats top military officers wealthy businessmen. Um, and like all these people would just buy her things nice um, and buy like give her places to stay that were really fancy just because okay. they could and she was like well yeah I'm gonna accept that and so she, she toured around most of the major European capitals where like all of her shows were sold out but when she started aging and people were less interested in her body she was still in demand as a courtesan and okay so the rich and powerful men still paid her mm-hmm. but and then the start of world war one sort of didn't change her like extravagant lifestyle which a lot of french people hated because they were like living on basics and yeah. she was just like being very ostentatious and she's like got all this stuff mm-hmm. but then around this time she the critics started becoming very critical in saying that like she isn't actually that good she's just like cheap exhibitionism and she was like a dancer who couldn't dance oh my god even though like like, she had all these like big social events that were all sold out everywhere they were still saying this about her i feel like that's a very kind of trump-esque method of being like i don't like you so i'm going to say you're not very good at the thing which you are very clearly very good at Mm. I mean, she was dancing into, like, her 40s, I think, 35, 40, mm. which is quite late-ish for a dancer. Yeah, yeah. But she, her last performance was on the 13th of March, 1915. Okay. So then she just continued having, like, relationships since she was kind of a courtesan or prostitute. Say again, sorry. A courtesan, a prostitute, they're the same. I don't 100% know. Was it just like I an expensive prostitute so. as a courtesan? Yeah. We might. I, think have like, I don't know. Do like they do? Yeah, different things. I don't. I don't one hundred percent know. I don't really know a lot about the the industry of sex work. Surprisingly. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> so with the outbreak of war, like her, just the public perception of her sort of shifted. So she she mm-hmm. was like a free spirited bohemian, but then she sort of became like a pr- promiscuous like dangerous sedu- seductress right when the war began i don't quite know why that would change but it did so she was from she was dutch so the netherlands were neutral in world war one so she was able to oh, was... cross borders pretty freely ah i was gonna say because i didn't i don't actually know yet anything about what the netherlands were doing nothing <laughs> yeah <laughs> So to avoid battlefields, she had to go sort of like the long way around. So like, go to Spain to get to France or to like Britain to get to Spain and also, sh- like just to avoid yeah. It. I can you imagine that that being like because I I imagine there would have been quite a few people for you know Dutch people who were 
just out of the war kind of completely like it was going on and things and they were just like this is a minor inconvenience for me yeah <laughs> the war is happening and i had to go the long way round. yeah so during the war she'd met a russian pilot who was called captain vadim maslov who nice name who she called the the love of her life um, oh okay yeah and they had a very intense relationship and he was part of the um 50,000 Russians they sent over in an expeditionary force which was sent to the front in uh, 1916. Okay. Yeah, but in in one of the, the fights he was quite seriously injured. Um the, I'm not quite sure if it was just like a battle wound or it was mustard gas, but he right. he lost sight in both of his eyes and she she was asking if she could go visit him in hospital, but because she's from a neutral country, she shouldn't be allowed anywhere near the front. Right. So the there were some agents from the Duomi Bureau who said mm. that if she agreed to spy for France, she could go and see him at the front. Interesting. I know. It's weird to think that you, like, if you were from a neutral country, you weren't allowed to be anywhere near the... The war simply because I guess because they just didn't know what you were doing. Yeah. Because you had you had no allegiances, but it's just it's weird to think that you just would not be allowed. I don't know. I never really thought about that before. Mm. Yeah. So before the war, she'd performed several times for the Crown Prince Wilhelm, who was the eldest son of the Kaiser. Okay. And so to French eyes, he was like the next in line, but he was actually mm. like not very good, and the the oh. Germans <laughs> didn't really like him because he was just like. He didn't care about war. He didn't really do anything in it. And he just, like, was a massive womanizer and just spent his time, like, having fun. And he was really into right-wing politics. And he literally just wanted to have his father declared insane. (laughs) So, um, but they didn't know this. So they sent her off to meet him because she'd performed for him before. So she's like, you know, connections. She was offered one million francs if she could uh, seduce him and like provide France with good intelligence about the German plans mm-hmm. and I th- I'm not entirely sure if she ever met him or she met one of his oh no she met a ma- like... a German major who okay arranged a meeting with him this is where the whole bit gets complicated and there's so many like conflicting stories so I apologize mm. if it's confusing so just so her contact with the the bureau was the was called George Ledeau and he comes back later he's not a good guy so the, there's actually not much known about what happened when she met the prince um mm-hmm. like if she got anything at all I can imagine if she had it it would have had to have been very kind of hush hush yeah and like he didn't really know yeah. anything about it anyway the prince because yeah he was he didn't care and so, like, in 1916, the war was not going well for France. Nope. Uh, they were, like, losing all the battles and a lot of people were dying. And so some so some French troops were just so demoralised that they were just outright refusing to fight. And so Ledeau, who was a correspondent, felt that if they could find a spy and pinpoint the spy for, like, the reason the war's going so badly... It might recharge the war effort. Oh. So, Ooh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, so later 1916, she was travelling from Spain, um, and then, I'm not quite sure where she was going, but on her way she had to pass through a British port, where she was arrested. 
So she had been... I forgot to mention this. She had been to... Britain had stopped her once before. Okay. But they were like, we couldn't find anything on you, but she could speak, like, seven languages, and they thought it was very suspicious, and they sort of just ruled out... (laughs) (laughs) I feel that's still a very British attitude. Like, you can speak seven languages. That's weird. Yeah. So they just were like, there's something not right about you, so we're not going to let you in the country ever again. So when she came back, like, just travelling through... They arrested her. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. And she was interrogated at Scotland Yard. Um and so eventually she was just getting really worried. So she just told mm. them that like she's working for Lido from the front yeah. authorities. They got in contact with him and he was just like, Yeah, just send her back to Spain. I don't want nothing to do what? with her. Which Right. Literally just kinda like dismissing her. Yeah. Cause he told them that he'd she'd they that he'd suspected that she was a spy for Germany, even though she was a spy who's <gasps> double timing. But he didn't have any like definite proof that she could do it, like was doing that. So he just kind of mm-hmm. like send her to there and see what happens. Oh. So she was sent to Madrid, and so she just because she didn't, I don't think she knew what was going on. So she just kind mm. of started finding out secrets from the military in Spain because there was a lot of uh, German leaders there. Okay. And she found out that there was going to be... German officers were going to uh, attack a coast of Morocco. And so she was trying to get in touch with Lido about this. And she was like, I- I've got this information, so can I have my reward? And, like, mm. I need further instructions. But he just didn't reply. Right. Yeah. And then she got into a relationship with um, a French colonel called Joseph... Denvins, Denvins. Hmm. and he got very annoyed when she would go out with other men so like to calm his jealousy she just told him that she worked for Lido and she was part of the French government and that's it's all a plot just right. so she can learn secrets I mean that was kind of true wasn't it or was she yeah. literally just going out with them because she wanted to I think it was both okay so she sent, because he was going back to France in a few days, so she sent him off with a, a letter full of information to give to Lido. Mm-hmm. But he, again, nothing came from it. And, like, the whole time he was spying on her, Lido was, like, intercepting, like, radio messages and stuff from that they thought she was having with the Germans. And because um, there was there was another spy, German spy, who had a very similar appearance to her. And so when the the French had cracked the German code, like they were sending Mm -hmm. messages to, but the Germans knew this. So it's kind of like, were they just building upon it to create something or were they just, it was a bit weird. So I think there was some confusion about, they thought she was this German spy, but she wasn't really a German spy. It gets very confusing. But then she... um, yeah she comes back to paris and she goes to like lido's office and he's like not gonna see her don't want to see her and then she told like the the bureau that that she'd been in contact with dead devin denvins who she fell in love Mm. with and they were like we don't know who that is they were just like completely cutting her off and she was just like i need Mm. the money i've got no money (laughs) i just want to see like my lover so there was a message that was found that only Ludo had heard, I think, that was that he that she was in contact with the Germans, and it was in like Decemberish time. But then it came like 
to, it came like figured it out that it was actually in April and then all traces of this message were then destroyed which means that there was basically no evidence right and so they were kind of like so I'm not sure if one point she did become a sp- spy for the Germans it gets so confusing um, because it says that yeah <laughs> there was an intelligence op- officer of the German army who just got really annoyed with her because he was just telling her like Parisian gossip and not anything like useful about the war yeah but I'm not like the research was so confusing so I'm equally as confused um and so she was like a lot of things were happening and she was sort of slowly being framed for stuff that was going on or she did actually it's like the whole thing is like they don't actually know if she was really a spy or not or she was just kind of like telling them sort of gossip and like she she, like she found out the stuff for the french but then i'm not sure if she just betrayed them because they'd betrayed her and then went to the germans but all they told all she told the germans was like gossip yeah i mean that kind of makes sense that you would because they just they kind of used her and then just kind of dumped her yeah so it's like that she'd be like okay well fuck you i'm gonna betray you but actually there's no, there's no, there's nothing of value that she was telling. And so she was still in Paris, and she was like running out of money, and she had no contact with Maslov. And then on February twelfth, nineteen seventeen, there was a, a warrant for her arrest on the grounds that she was a German spy. Right. And so the next morning, she was arrested, and her room was searched, and all her possessions were taken away. And she was interrogated by this man called Pierre Bouchardin, mm-hmm. who was. Apparently, very disapproving of immoral women, so was very hard on her because he knew what she did in the past. Yeah. And he placed her in isolation in, like, one of the worst prisons in Paris, and she slept in a flea and rast infested cell. She had no soap. She was denied, like, medical treatment, clean clothing, um, money for food or stamps for letters. What an asshole. It literally includes in possessing she was denied laundry because that's an essential <laughs> and so her lawyer she had a lawyer at the time who was one of her former lovers called edward right. and he was not a good lawyer <laughs> he was just kind of really just like yeah there's nothing to worry about no just it'll be fine i wonder if he was like he was just bitter because he was an ex-lover <laughs> of hers maybe and so like she was starting to be in the prison for months and so she started to like genuinely fear that she might be prosecuted mm-hmm. and so she was begging them for mercy and she wrote a letter and she was just like she just wanted to see Maslov pretty much and like mm-hmm. all of his letters were sent to her but they were not given to her she was just mm-hmm. kept away from them and um, so the there was a trial on July 24th of 1917 and she was on trial for eight charges and so it doesn't say what the eight charges were, but basically, like, okay. Le- <laughs> um, Ledeau's telegram and, like, radio messages that he'd intercepted mm. were used as, like, main evidence. Right. But, like, I'm not sure if it happened during the trial or years later. It was found that they were made up. They were an elaboration <gasps> of his. And he, like, I think it was a few months after she was... I can't be on that now. She was uh, prosecuted because she was found guilty he was then killed for espionage Ooh, plot twist yeah 
so the the jury was all military men and so they were all very angry because in their head she was seen to kill um 50,000 men because she had information that she was spreading to the germans or whatever mm-hmm. um but there was actually no evidence that supported this in the trial. I'm really glad that we exist in a time where a jury has to be fair. <laughs> and then they started bringing up all of her like immoral lifestyles from before and they were just like, wow, clearly this shows that she can't be trusted because she did this and this and this and they kind of <sighs> used her as a scapegoat like there was literally no evidence whatsoever that she'd Yeah, but as soon as they got distrust of her one thing they're like well we can pin everything on her yeah and so her lawyer like tried to help and he got one of the french foreign affairs ministers to stand up in court and say that nothing had ever spoiled my good opinion of this lady <laughs> and that was his defense great yeah that's oh it's like a character reference in a cv it's like it's there for very little and like when he was on the stand actually he did accuse the prosecutor of accepting the case he knew was false and then like years later the prosecutor confessed that there was nowhere near enough evidence to flog a cat in the case is what he said but then she was convicted of all counts and was sentenced to be executed by firing squad oh my god yeah and there was a lot of attempts to change the sentence to uh, just prison and there was appeals yeah. for presidential pardons all were denied and then her execution was carried out in secrecy on o- October the 15th 1917 uh, oh yeah and she refused to be like blindfolded or tied to the stake and apparently she blew a kiss at the firing squad <laughs> before they shot her i i appreciate that yeah um and then one of the sergeants remarked whilst it was happening by god this lady knows how to die oh my god yeah so her body was never claimed by any of the family members so they just used it for medical study and then they actually they found a head that was embalmed in the museum museum of anatomy in paris and and then in 2000 they the archivists found that the head had disappeared which it, it's still missing today like the whole body is there the just head is missing what yeah like and there was no record of it since like 1954 so it had been missing for like half a century and no one noticed oh my god and then um in 2017 the french government or the french army it declassified all of the trial documents related to her case which was 120 oh no 1275 pages worth um and that was yeah. 100 years after she was executed oh my god and she was basically a scapegoat even though she literally didn't do anything she just wanted to see her lover Love it. and she was never paid oh my god <laughs> the know. injustice i know and literally if she got That's like awful. the prison sentence rather than death they would have realized that the guy who was a main um, accuser Bladeau, was later like um, done for espionage so yeah. can anything he said be true because he just killed this woman and like if they just waited she would have been fine but they didn't they just 
Shut it. He said that, like, your parents, like, recognised her name. Like, what is she remembered for? That's what I'm not quite sure. I think she might actually be remembered as a genuine spy. Or, like... Yeah. But for who? Germany. But I'm not entirely sure. I should have asked them. It's just... Oh. It's literally the opposite of Mm. yours. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's... That's so annoying, because it's, like... I mean, for uh, so many reasons, but also the fact that, like... Her name was just dragged through the dirt for the purpose of making, you know, like a few men feel better about the fact that they weren't winning a war. Yeah. And she would be remembered for the next however many, like, like 100 years mm. as someone who betrayed. Oh, that's so. There is a Dutch museum where she's got a room dedicated to her. And I think it's in the town she was born. There's a big statue of her. In um, her oh. famous, like, the jeweled breastplate and nothing else in the middle of the, the town. There's a statue of her wearing a breastplate and nothing else. Yeah, she's fun. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, I think she, regardless of what she did, like, spying, she definitely, like, changed the, like, Paris scene of dance. Like Definitely, yeah. Josephine Baker couldn't have done it without her. And... Nope. But, I mean, she didn't go about it the best way. No, but but she did with style. Yes, true. New film on Netflix is my recommendation called The Half of It. Mm. Definitely go and watch. Written, directed by a woman. Very, very good film. Very wholesome film. It's about soulmates, but not romantic soulmates. It's about friendship soulmates. It's very, very nice. Oh. Go watch that. Mine Yours? is um, Douglas by Hannah Gadsby. It's a new comedy special. Oh, it's so good. Yes, I haven't watched it yet. I've been. I've, I've kind of been saving it in my in my soul. It's amazing uh, to watch it. I love yeah, it so much. Uh, but I'm so excited. I didn't realize she was doing uh, like having a new one mm. put onto Netflix until it like came up in my you know when it like she says like, soon coming to Netflix and it came mm-hmm. up and I was like yes. <laughs> but yes, yeah, good recommendation. Mm-hmm. And that's the episode because it's already really long. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. And we shall see you next time for disguise. Yes, is the next one, isn't it? Yeah, which will be exciting. We can pretend to be each other. I bid you adieu. So oh disguise God, me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. And uh, see you next time. Yeah. Bye. Bye.